0: Hello and welcome to Questonia, where usually we ask the questions we think need answering in Estonian news and culture. I'm Stuart Garlic, and as always, I'm here with Marius Heilrand. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, the fifteenth of July, and the podcast is released on Thursday, sixteenth of July. This edition of the podcast, rather than purely focusing on the issues hitting the front pages this week, looks at a story which we think has an impact on how we live our lives today, has its roots in how Estonia regained its independence, and may have a profound effect on the future of democracy around the world. You may not know that Radio Free Europe and its partner station, Radio Liberty, still exist, but they celebrated their 70th anniversary on the 4th of July this year, now as part of the US Agency for Global Media. What does this have to do with Estonia? Well, Radio Free Europe broadcast into Estonia in the Estonian language until 2004, so well after the Soviet occupation, telling people under Soviet occupation from 1950 about the news and views that they could not get through official channels. In that way, along with only tangentially connected phenomena like illegally imported Western music, Finnish television that could be received in Tallinn, and dissident writers and artists on the ground in Estonia, Radio Free Europe was part of a patchwork that, that gave effective and reliable methods of convincing people that life was better outside the USSR, and that there was a way of ending communist rule. In a moment, we'll speak to Dr. James Vaughan, a historian from the Department of International Politics, Aberystwyth University. He's a specialist in propaganda, Whose areas of interest include Cold War broadcasting. He also advised many years ago my master's dissertation on the policy changes within Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe due to the Hungarian uprising of 1956. Maris, this is a fascinating subject for me, and obviously, you have a personal angle because you actually worked for Radio Free Europe. <laughs>
1: aksion oma neljale ja puuele aastale Raadi vaba Euroopas leidma kirjandusliku pealkirja siis nimetaksin neid õpiaastat ekspeririigis. Olen Raadi seasamal Mühinisi ülikoolis öppinud ühteist ajakirjanduse poliitika ja inimeste kohta. Ülikooli õpetes ündistama, Raadio õpetes konkreetiseerima, materjali on andnud ajal You want
0: to just uh... Paint a picture of uh, how you came to join it, and also uh, for how long you were there.
1: Yes, I joined Radio Free Europe 1990, and I was um, uh, studying at the Munich University at the time, and uh, I was very young, was the baby in the in the um, Estonian service, and um, I'm I stayed there for five years until the radios moved to Prague. And I must say until this day that uh, Radio Free Europe kind of made me as a uh, journalist to to experience and learn this um, diligent work of of newscraft, of uh, fact check and so on. And it probably uh, includes some of the most uh, sort of vivid and significant memories of of growing up during this um, time of changes because... uh, August 91, I, um, when uh, when the coup d'etat happened in Moscow. That was uh, probably my most memorable week of work ever, because everyone, everyone in Estonia tends to remember where they were. And what happened in Munich during that time, it, August was the usual time of the annual leaves. So uh, there was almost no one at work. And... Uh, like Thomas Hendrik Ilves, who was the editor in chief at the time, he had taken a family vacation and was somewhere away in Italy, as were many other people from the service. So I was there as the youngest uh, uh, youngest uh, staffer, and uh, then we uh, we started um, keeping all the lines open and broadcasting uh, news every hour and working uh, for several days. Uh, uh, throughout the day, whereas we usually just had one hour of broadcast daily. So uh, it was really a, a sort of a high adrenaline experience, and, and uh, we felt like, uh, like we were in the middle of the events taking place, because we could also very quickly collect information from, from uh, Moscow and all other, other places uh, where the big changes and the events were happening and of course everyone all of these all of the colleagues started traveling back immediately once they got uh, word that uh, that uh, events are happening in the, in the world history and
0: i know that but because you were there and because because you because you still care very much about the service that they provide um you're a bit concerned about the changes under the trump administration which we're going to discuss in more detail uh do you want to just give us a brief overview of what michael pack is doing at radio free europe and radio liberty
1: Well, michael pack has been um uh, named um as the boss of this american um Broadcasting operation um, that oversees uh, several broadcasting stations, uh, among them Radio Free Radio, uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, also Voice of America, and uh, to the surprise of uh, everyone involved, he has um, uh, fired the heads of all these stations. Some of them have who have. Uh, been actually affiliated with uh, the Republican Party, so there's no real explanation and understanding why this is happening. And um, another very worrying sign is that uh, uh, the residency permits of um, of the of uh, Voice of America journalists or from different other stations working in the US, who are native speakers or nationals of the countries they broadcast to, that their um, residency permits um, are not being renewed. So they are basically being thrown out of the country um, and uh, will need to uh, return to uh, probably to places uh, where they are not very welcome.
0: Potentially uh, foreboding stuff. Well, we'll talk to James Vaughan now. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Where does this podcast find you today?
2: I am um, locked down or almost locked down in Aberystwyth in West Wales, uh, not far from the campus of Aberystwyth University, which is still unfortunately uh, uh, under restrictions of access, so I'm working from home at the moment.
0: Right, uh, and um, you, you're you're a historian from the Department of International Politics at uh, Aberystwyth University, where I studied. Uh, and um, y- your your specialist area right now you can talk about in a moment. But uh, one one of the, one of the areas that you focus on is uh, propaganda and. Um, I believe you wrote a book 15 years ago uh, on uh, this topic that we're going to discuss today. Um, m- maybe you'd like, first of all, to talk about the book that you're writing and also talk about the book that you wrote 15 years ago and how that sort of links in with the topics that we're discussing.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, my current project is, is, is not really in the area of propaganda or there are certain elements of it that... that where you know, political communication and, and, and sort of media relations plays into it. But it's, it's a really a, a sort of long history of British-Israeli relations over the course of the 20th and 21st centuries, uh, and particularly looking at UK-Israeli relations through the um, prism of party politics and the evolution of the views of the two Sort of major um, parties, certainly um, after World War One, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, but also touching on some of the, the the smaller parties as well, the Liberals in decline after World War I, um, re-emergence sort of nearly of third-party politics with the SDP, and also some of the more extreme um, parties, the kind of BUF fascists or the Communist Party as well. So to try and present a big picture of how British domestic party politics has interacted with international relations in the context of the Arab-Israeli dispute in the Middle East. So that's the current project. Before that, I was working on um, uh, an exploration of American and British Cold War propaganda targeting the Arab Middle East um, in the period from sort of, the origins of the Cold War immediately after World War II through to the sort of, beginnings of Eisenhower's second term, the, the sort of decline of British influence after the Suez Crisis and the enunciation of the Eisenhower Doctrine at the beginning of 1957. And within that context, I did look at some of the um, more interesting dimensions of propaganda on the radio, um, both in terms of what the British and the Americans were doing through their more overt Um, whether it's BBC or Voice of America, or whether it's through some of the shadier um, sort of underground clandestine broadcasting stations that were set up. And also looking at what was coming the other way, of course, from Arab radio stations like, you know, NASA's Egypt's Voice of the Arabs as well after 1953.
0: (laughs) Well, obviously, if you look at uh, um, if you look at Estonia these days, uh, it's it's very very different to how it was when it regained its independence. I think that's pretty obvious uh, to, to to anyone. But there, but there's still remnants of Soviet times. If you look at the buildings, if you look at the architecture. But um, how how important? Um, in your opinion, was Radio Free Europe and, to an extent, Radio Liberty uh, in um, in in the Soviet occupation in the early period? Because um, going up to the Hungarian uprising of 1956, people actually thought that uh, these um, uh, information radio broadcasts could cause the end of communism, didn't they?
2: Yeah, there's some sort of academic debate about that, particularly in, in the context of Hungary 56, which is one of the most of controversial moments isn't it in, in the history of the radios um, the extent to which uh, people have argued that the the radios were kind of uh, actively encouraging an uprising that ultimately the Americans weren't able to support and it was a, you know, in, a, in a way kind of sending people to um, the, the not so tender mercies of the of the rearriving Red Army um, but in a sense that actually does then speak to the the significance and influence of the radios themselves. I mean we we can yeah, you know, there are arguments about the extent to which, you know, that's a fair argument or whether it's unfair. But the fact that people have that argument does very much place the radios, you know, at the center of the debate. And I think that itself is is indicative of their significance, that they're you know, that they're still relevant, you know, for people arguing about the the histories of the Cold War in that particular period, certainly certainly in the context of Hungary in fifty six. I think that's probably the big one. Um, but you could probably apply that to a number of other moments in in the um Uh, the Cold War all the way up to the ending of I know Gorbachev talked about the importance in in his view was it listening to the BBC wasn't it when he he was under house arrest in the um, sort of counter-revolution period of the the ending of the Cold War and that in sort of 1989-91 period
0: so, if we talk about American values at the time, um, they, they were almost perceived as being the same as democratic values, um, as as Western values, and they, they were seen generally as be, as as being good things um, in potentially speeding on the uh, the end of communism, the end of communist rule in uh, places like Estonia. Um, but. Uh, um, Marius, I'd also love to know. Uh, obviously, in the late eighties and early nineties, things were very different. But um, what, what was what was your impression of um, the changes taking place? And also, what was it that um, that um, allowed you to take a place at Radio Free Europe as as a broadcaster there? And how did you get involved with that?
1: That was really um, just a row of coincidences, I guess, and. Um, Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union had started to open up a little bit in the second half of the 80s after uh, Gorbachev um, got to power uh, with, um, with the glasnost politics and perestroika politics. And uh, before before we started to dream of um, re-establishing independence here or anything like it, things already started to, to open up a little bit and you were not... Uh, sent to Siberia any longer for saying uh, certain things. Yes, and that was uh, that was ov- obviously uh, a time where uh, this international broadcast started also to somehow to lose uh, its importance because um, more and more information actually started to get through into sort of widespread media because the way people here listen to RFE or uh, Voice of America. It 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 was quite um, quite tricky. It was uh, it was difficult to listen. You ha- you really had to be dedicated to to um, listen to all these crackling uh, sounds of uh, that was full of um, jamming. It was you're, you you couldn't could pick up uh, words and not not complete sentences sometimes. But um, I remember my dad listening to voice of america or radio for europe when i was a kid and uh, in uh, 1990 it happened that after having um, started my journalism studies in tartu in estonia i suddenly uh, got the chance to uh, transfer to uh, germany to munich and uh, as it happened radio for europe was also in munich so when i was as i was studying journalism there I um got in touch with the people at the radio and uh uh and was able to start uh, uh doing some freelance work there at first and then was later hired as a full-time staff so um in a way, I started to work as a as an editor broadcaster before I was actually mature enough to be a listener <laughs> because I had been a kid when 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 my dad listened to it.
0: And we, we talked a bit before recording, and uh, you said that there was no particular structure, it wasn't like the Erasmus programme or something for Soviet students to go abroad, and there weren't many of you uh, going to places like Munich to study. Um, what, 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 was, what was it actually uh, like to be an Estonian student abroad in those days, and what was that your first experience of outside of the USSR?
1: I had been to the uh, East Germany once um and I had been to West Germany once at a uh, school exchange because my school here had uh, German as uh, the main foreign language so we had um the school had just uh, started so it was not quite my fir- very first time but it was very uh it was like being thrown in- into an ocean and you either sink or swim because there was no I had no um scholarship no grant um, I just got this. Like uh, I was accepted to the to to the university, but that that, that was all. Everything else was up to myself. So uh, I I I don't think I would let my kids go anywhere like under these conditions today.
0: Yeah. Um this is a question for both of you. Uh, Mary's first then James if you if you have anything to add. I mean, uh what was the role of Radio Free Europe uh, in about 1990? Uh because obviously you could see things happening on the ground in Estonia independently anyway uh, in terms of the independence movement, the Baltic Chain, the Song Festival. Um what was the role of a, of a information radio broadcast in those days?
1: I w- I would uh, say that um actually for um it was a it was a very eye-opening experience for me i had uh, started working um in estonia or did some internships in estonian media when uh, while studying and seeing how how a uh, how a uh, how an editorial um, sort of uh, uh, staff uh works here and then the comparison to RFE and also with all these prejudices of RFE being a propaganda operation that was something that uh, that i lost really quickly because uh uh what was the uh, the alpha and omega of RFE broadcast and content was that every piece that we broadcast had to have at least three independent sources so uh we got this loads of information Daily, it was all still on paper. Like you got a you got a stack of of news items. Um, so if you're working on a certain topic, you you have at least three independent sources, and you start to look at the sources really critically. Like uh, mainly, it's large agencies or large um, other news organizations uh, from different countries. So uh, the work with with the sources was really. Diligent and careful, and that was something that that people here in journalism, of course, never had because this was not available. This kind of information uh, overload, and um, no, and this is something that we don't see happening today. There's uh, there's uh, this uh, really fast news cycle especially in online media uh, here means that uh, things get published before they are properly fact-checked. And um, so um, that was something where where I always uh, jump when people say uh, propaganda in connection with RFE because what we did was actually provide really balanced and well-sourced information about things happening in the world at the time and uh, perhaps... Um, Sort of in the years, in the early 90s, Estonia was very uh, preoccupied with things happening inside the country and all these big changes. So RFE sort of provided additional, wider, broader view of things taking place in other countries at the same time. That That was really important and to help to establish and create a larger global context, if you will. So um, I think that was the main role at the time of uh, in the in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh,
0: James, uh, what what is your feeling on uh, how the uh, role of the station might have evolved by that stage? And um, yeah, that, d- that, did the Americans view it the same way?
2: That's really interesting. And I suspect that that fits in with the, the sort of broader pattern of change that we see. If you look at the history of American Cold War broadcasting, both in terms of RFE and RL, but also Voice of America as well. Because earlier in the Cold War, I suspect they weren't I'm going to be rude about American propagandists, but there was there's a sense you get from looking at the archive that they were a little bit cruder in their approach. Um, Voice of America was deeply criticised um, by um, British Foreign Office guys and, the, and BBC guys as being quite a crude, hectoring, know overtly propagandistic tone which actually put listeners off you know nobody likes being sort of shouted at and lectured at and I think they got more sophisticated as the as the Cold War ran by I think probably the early 70s was a big turning point as well for a whole bunch of reasons I mean it's in the early 1970s I think if I remember rightly that that Radio Free Europe comes out of CIA control um, and goes into a system that's rather more similar to what we have now with kind of congressional oversight um, and um, uh, uh, sort of uh, government bodies kind of channeling funding towards them, but with a bit more accountability. And certainly, um, as a result of that accountability requirement for higher journalistic standards. And I think what Marius has been talking about very much speaks to, to those kinds of changes. Um, I think as, as well, um, the way in which the dynamics of the Cold War's so ideological battle had kind of crystallized um, over the course of the, the the conflict, it does give the Western broadcasters an advantage because the Soviet Union is inherently so defensive. It is a closed society. It wants to stop certain messages getting in. Um, hence the jamming that, that that was talked about just then. Stalin, I think, started that and took a huge amount of technical and financial resources unsuccessfully to keep trying to do that. Um, but that gives the, the Western broadcasters the ability to project themselves as you know, the, 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 we, we just want to give the information out, you know, so you can actually just provide, you know, obviously selected information, you don't want to necessarily be putting out information that serves the Soviet Union's propaganda purposes. So there's always there's always that element of selection. But there's plenty of factual, truthful, you know, objective information that could be utilised a that served the interests of the West's kind of Cold War strategy, but which also served to keep that sort of the sense of the, the West as the voice of freedom and the Soviet Union as the voice of um, sort of a defensive closed attempt to control the minds of its own peoples and the peoples in the countries over which um, it was controlling in, in Eastern Europe. So I think, you know, my view is is very much along the same lines, but I think it's interesting to see how the um, sort of the evolution of of, of practices um, and the ways in which the radios were linked up with government, particularly the, the early days when they were more Overtly connected to the kind of clandestine intelligence security state, and that had rather changed a little bit by the time I think we get towards the the last decade or so of the Cold War.
0: And actually, what what you both said about uh, um, um, journalistic scrutiny and about the uh, um, three independent sources, and you, you know that 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 level of research that really. Uh, isn't possible when you're making ten or twenty articles per day uh, for the um, for for the social media cycle. Um, it's just it's just a different system these days, um, and it's a different way of doing doing journalism. Really, um, do, does that mean that uh, you know when you compare it to uh, some of the Russian propaganda arms, which are um, in many cases uh, not at all um, uh, focused on getting facts across? Um, does that make RFE and RL and Voice of America's job? Um, a lot more difficult these days uh, in actually um, having basic levels of uh, probity in terms of its journalism.
1: I don't think you, uh, as a as a proper um, fact based uh, journalist, you have you are really in competition with uh, Russian propaganda channels like RT or the like, because uh, that's it's not really the same audience you are you are fighting for at all. About, uh, about the role of RFIRL in, in the Cold War and ending the Cold War, it's, uh, it's just worthwhile to um, sort of describe the, what, what actually happened there, because uh, obviously the stations were annoying the, the Soviet bloc enough uh, that they tried to constantly infiltrate it with their uh, spies. And, and the Romanians actually arranged a bombing. I don't know if you are aware of that, but in February 81, there was a huge bomb blast. Carlos the Jackal, a very famous terrorist, planted a huge bomb. Luckily, no one was killed, but four four people were injured. And uh, by the time I arrived at the station, uh, it was surrounded by a huge um, a three-meter fence with barbed wire and... Uh, very um, diligent um, security uh, for uh, for entering and exiting the building so uh, i mean it was um, it really looked like uh, some sort of a military operation from the from the facilities so it must have been annoying the um, the eastern bloc rulers quite a lot to put that effort into it into undermining or they are de- endangering the lives even of these people maybe to uh, build a connection to today and uh, what i've been thinking of a lot in in the last days when we heard the news that uh, the u.s international broadcasting operation that they are going to uh, let the visas of their foreign staff expire and the people will be sent back to the countries um, I've been thinking of all these people who worked at the RFERL. they were they were like um, you you could ha- you could meet a former Georgian princess in the in the halls and uh, at the, and someone who had spent ten years in the in the Siberian gulag. So it was um also um sort of a safe haven for for uh, dissidents from the Soviet bloc. and I think uh, the different uh, media operations. Still keep uh, playing that role in part. So it's uh, it's really um, uh, with great sadness I look at the steps that the U.S. is undertaking now, sending these people back potentially into harm's way, because obviously they are they have hired a lot of uh, foreign nationals to do these broadcasts in all these uh, many dozens of languages, and. It's the languages and it's the local expertise and connections these people have, and uh, we're talking about um, Central Eastern uh, Central uh, Central Asian countries uh, with uh, huge restrictions. It's uh, it's a very uh, worrying development.
0: Yeah, and, and J- James, I'd I'd love to uh, get your point of view on how this um, uh, um how this might have an effect, and also um w- why are these things happening? It seems to me that uh, you know from what Marius is saying there that um an, an organization such as the International American Information Broadcasting Infrastructure needs a fairly steady hand on the tiller, and it needs uh, people in charge who really understand the history and impact of the services. Uh, does it seem to you that the Trump administration officials such as michael pack don't have that knowledge and also what are they trying to do and what might be the, the effect of that
2: i mean this is taking me a little bit out of my, out of my comfort zone but i've I got some ideas um i mean one thing i'd say is that we need perhaps be a bit wary of the idea that that the sort of political battles over the control of and the um the content of american Broadcast media, international broadcast media, has has always been, you know, as you say, a wonderful steady hand on the tiller, and I don't think that's actually been the case. It's it's often been the target of quite unscrupulous populist politicians. I mean, uh, Voice of America had a horrific time in the McCarthy era, um, was seriously targeted by by the sort of McCarthyite um, witch hunts, um, and needed some fairly significant defending just to survive from um, as, as we cross over from Truman to Eisenhower administration. Um, yeah, there's there's always big arguments about budget and whether it's you know, these things are, are, are paying their way, and that's kind of perhaps more conventional stuff of, of bureaucratic politics. But yeah, you know, I think yeah, you know, there've been occasionally that you can kind of point to figures who've kind of really taken it on and 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 done a, a, a great job of kind of mobilising America's sort of natural resources and channeling them into these kinds of activities. But I don't think the Americans have always been particularly consistent about prioritising and and managing. I mean, hence the. The way we've seen these things sort of shuttled about within the American kind of Cold War um, sort of propaganda bureaucracy and, organi- and media infrastructure um, and so in a sense Trump is kind of continuing that um, albeit I think in a, in a way that reflects on the negative rather than the positive um, variants that we can see if we look back over the course of the last sort of 50-60 years or so um, it does strike me in a weird kind of way um, that if the pathway that we, that we're going to see is these stations become more of a tool of the White House and reflect more the kind of political communication strategy if that's what it is that we see coming from from Trump and his his spokesman it would end up turning it more into an exercise that looked like a Putinite um, exercise, you know, it would, it would look a little bit more like a Sputnik or a, or a, um, an RT, where you're looking at, um, you know, much less of a care for, you know, checkable information and, and more of a kind of a muddying exercise. Now, I'm not, you know, not saying for certain that's where it's going to go. But if it does end up, you know, reflecting that kind of Trumpist populism and kind of conspiratorial approach to the news and politics, um, then it's it would be a shame because it would be taking um, these stations away from the Yeah, the the maturing tradition that we spoke about earlier and towards something that maybe, you know, as I say brings it more into line with some of the more regrettable elements of twenty first century political news culture um but it's not inconceivable and that that may be what we see happening but as i say you know, predicting the future is not an easy game but i would also just add to um the point that was made about the the courage of the people who worked on these stations historically um yeah the 1981 bomb in munich was was a you know classic example of that but there are a number of people you know the, the people who were targeted as dissidents working for whether it was Radio Free Europe or Radio Liberty who ended up paying the ultimate sacrifice there were there were assassinations in the 1950s as the very famous um killing of the Bulgarian dissident who was a, an RFE contributor Georgi Markov in London in 1978 um and so the the idea that that um Radio Free Europe or Radio Liberty staff um can be kind of thrown back into into an environment where they would be seen as politically um troublemakers if you like you know dissidents who you know and we know what, what Putin's attitude is towards those who cross in, particularly in journalism. Um, so I think that was a, a very important point that was made.
1: Yes, and what's what's uh, really, I think, different um, this time um, at the changes, of course, you can accept that every administration is making some sort of changes, but uh, the, uh, the structure, as I understand it, is, is that Michael Pack is actually just... Uh, his only boss is President Trump, so um, that's uh, that's kind of a new structure. And uh, what puzzles me a little bit is that Trump is not interested in international affairs, so he, he's he's withdrawing America from its international role. So I wonder why why would he need uh, uh, this international broadcasting services to uh, sort of uh, broadcast his his. Um, Uh, line worldwide at all so maybe there are some other plans of restructuring or channeling the the funds um towards uh, more sort of in american uh, uh, operations after all in 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 that context it would make sense to let all these um uh, foreign editors go and leave the country because you you don't need those people any longer if you don't, if you stop broadcasting into these countries. But this is just uh, a purely a speculation. So uh, all in all, uh, a very, uh, a very strange time.
0: Yeah. And to, to link all this in with uh, the, with, with the Baltics, it, it seems to me that one, one of the reasons why ultimately um um, You know, anyone living in Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania can say that for the moment, at least, uh, they're safe from the threat of Russian invasion or, or annexation is because of memberships of EU and NATO and uh, because of the protection that uh, NATO and that the United States offers. Um. This is a question for both of you. Uh, do, do you believe that this kind of um, uh, pushback on U.S. international influence and this this uh, this uh, kind of retreat from international influence that the U.S. is going through, does this um, possibly threaten the long-term security of countries that have considered themselves free for some time now?
1: Oh, definitely, it has. Yes, I, I'm. I'm convinced of that. That. What's happening in in Washington is at the moment, or since the few years, is the biggest uh, threat to our security here at all.
2: Yeah, I agree. If you if you see the radios, you know, whether particularly Radio Free Europe is very much part of a, a Cold War set of institutions that were set up from with a very particular. You know, Western set of values and, and ideological agendas in play, you know, that came with you know this, the establishment of of, of NATO um, and American attempts to mobilise Western Europe and to coordinate a Western European uh, response against the 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 threat um, coming from the Soviet Union. Um, then, you know, if that's weakening, then it's unsurprising you know that you would see the the traditional role of Radio Free Europe weakening with it. I mean, that, that they seem. To me to come as a package in that sense you either you would either then weaken or or remove or turn them into something very very different and a, a long way from their original purpose
0: and it seems like exactly the wrong time to uh, weaken the sort of U.S.-led um, uh, information infrastructure as well. When you when you consider that um, again, I know Russian propaganda we've said is is not fighting for the same audience, but when you consider the level of disinformation from countries that would um, that would be quite happy if uh, American influence was not present in the same way. Um, What can we expect for the future? And um, does this mean that, uh, for example, people in Estonia or the other Baltic nations uh, might find themselves more prone to the dissemination of fake news and might find themselves more prone to uh, there not being a counter argument and not being facts available in the future? And how will will this affect uh, countries such as the Baltics in the future, Um, either of you?
1: Well uh, Radio for Europe Radio Liberty does uh, does not really um have uh, the, uh, programs in the Baltic languages any longer in Estonian, Latvian or Lithuanian so it um sort of it doesn't in that way it doesn't uh, it doesn't um have an effect here however its uh, Russian content still might be potentially uh, worth for Russian speakers in the Baltics uh, as an audience, um, so uh, I'm not sure what's what's happening uh, on that field. I have no data about uh, the listener numbers or anything like it. Uh, all I know is that independent journalists in Russia tend to fall out of windows, and as do
0: doctors questioning coronavirus stats. Yes, uh, d- James, any any thoughts on that point?
2: Yeah, I, I suppose it. I again, it's an, on, an ongoing. Um, question about the balance you strike particularly when you're in the business of international media work um, and information work and you know call it propaganda if you like I mean a lot of people regard the term propaganda as an inherently negative one I tend not to Um, depends what you do with it as to whether it ends up being kind of a morally good or morally bad thing Um, but that balance particularly that the West has has traditionally struck between the uh, the agencies of the state and the ability to mobilize the private sector I think is increasingly important i mean it was something that gave the west a distinct advantage during the cold war that they were able to draw upon effectively private enterprise to put the west message across which people very often tended to regard as more believable you know people have this sense that if you're hearing something on the voice of america very often then oh this is this is the official line you know there may be a degree of kind of pushback or skepticism about it, it depends yeah you know, what, what environment you're listening to it in i suspect um, But the ability of the West to kind of use independent media um, and to to develop what Scott Lucas has called state private networks was, I think, fundamental in the winning of the Cold War's information battles. And I suspect, you know, if we're looking at a renewed, uh, albeit slightly different kind of clash between uh, certainly a Russian media environment and and the the West, then those kind of issues will no doubt come to the fore again. And then you, you ask the question of what the role of those more traditional Cold War stations like VOA um rfe are going to be um and what the best uh vehicles for kind of um combating some of the 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 messages that are coming out of a sort of a, a much more cleverly controlled um russian state controlled propaganda exercise that we see now i think i think what putin does is much cleverer than the way in which the Soviet Union ran the operation during the Cold War. It was much more monolithic, much more status, much more defensive. Uh, the flexibility that he has now with these um, organizations like Sputnik and, R- and, and, and RT and the reach that they have inside the West, um, far more than the Soviet Union would ever have had with things like Pravda or Radio Moscow way back in, in the 60s, 70s. So I think the, the, the renewal of the battle with a rather different... Order of battle is something that poses some really interesting challenges to to Western security and, and and those who are responsible for it in relation to the the information side of things and the battle over news. Um,
0: I think I think I think one last thing I'd like to ask, and then Marius might have another point as well, is. Um, um generally in estonia if you if you um have have facebook friends in estonia you see a regular uh, share of some kind of single source blog post that suggests that uh, putin has designs on the baltics and you know this is something that comes out every every few months and it's usually uh, either a uh, someone who claims to have the ear of a former military colonel or an academic in Tallinn or something and you know that's that's not anything abnormal but uh, the noise level on these blog posts and on these uh you know independent journalism pieces has risen recently um are we possibly seeing uh, the early ramp up of a new Cold War, and uh, is there the possibility, at least, of Putin getting more serious about uh, taking back the uh, lost areas of the former Soviet Union, or is this pie in the sky while he's in Donbass and while he's in Syria, for example?
2: I'm a bit loath I mean, I'm, I'm maybe contradicting myself. Something I said earlier, but the the idea of a new Cold War, uh, I think we need to be a bit careful about that, especially if we're if you're using the term Cold War and kind of capital letters to say, right, we're just going to pick up again where we left off in 1989, 1990. Yeah. I think, you know, a a sort of a new era of, of ideological confrontation may well occur, but I suspect it needs to be looked at as for what it is now, rather than to sort of hang it on the the analogy of the Cold War era. I think we can certainly draw lessons from the Cold War era um, and look at what happened then. But I suspect, um that the the nature of the confrontation and the particularly the ideological dimension has changed fairly fundamentally um just not to say there might not be continuities particularly when it comes to ideas of uh of uh russian nationalism which is always sort of tucked away within the kind of communist ideology of the soviet union anyway it was that it was george Kennan, wasn't it who said what we're dealing with is that combination of russian nationalism with the ideology of marxist-leninism um but I think we need to be a little bit careful about simply saying a new Cold War and and then sort of missing out on some of the things that have changed fairly radically um uh in the twenty years or so since the end since the ending of the Cold War. Um but the idea that the uh know yeah, that the, the Russians under Putin will have you know nationalistic expansionist ambitions, I don't think is a you know is is in, in entirely, you know, wacky and out there. I think it's kind of realistic. But I think Putin is perhaps more of a an opportunist these days rather than someone who's driven by the same kinds of sort of statist monolithic ideology that we might have seen in in certain elements of the, of the Cold War and the sort of doctrinal approaches of a Brezhnev or, or certainly as a Danov or a Stalin um, so he needs to be taken for what he is I think rather than than imposing kind of historical models on him which he's probably moved away from to some degree but that's me talking off the top of my head a little bit there I'm, I'm not going to claim to be a, an enormous expert on Putin you'd have to get my colleague Jenny on, I think if you want to talk um, contemporary Russian politics
0: which could be interesting um, Marius uh, do, do you have any points to make on that or anything else
1: well, I think the trouble here is um, there is no declaration of the Cold War. So you can't pinpoint a, a date to that. It's some somewhat an ambigu- ambiguous uh, thing. And we could say we have a Cold War since, I don't know, 2007 cyber attacks. So uh, there are... It's it's uh, it's sort of a question of how you how you define a Cold War. You can always keep talking about the uh, the need to reset the Russian Russia politics or the need to keep talking and so on. But in fact, we are living with economic sanctions on both ways and uh, and um, sort of the uh, and back and uh, countries backtracking from. Um, Uh, from different uh, uh, weapons agreements and so on. So uh, perhaps we are living in a Cold War already without having explicitly declared a war. Thank you for listening to Questonia. You can subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. Our next program will be on Thursday, 30th of July. Bye for now.